0: A saying that has often been asked, especially over the last decade or so, is a phrase like this. If your church were to disappear tomorrow, would anyone notice? If Wellspring Anglican Church, for example, we guests in Wellspring Anglican Church today. If Wellspring Anglican Church were to disappear tomorrow, would anyone notice? How would you answer for Wellspring, for your church, for your church up in the northwest or in Perth or Adelaide or Indigo or wherever it is? Perhaps a few less people handing out flyers at the train station at Easter time. A few less awkward religious conversations when you're picking up your kids from school at the school gate. Maybe just easier to find a park on Sunday. (laughs) Would anyone notice if your church were to disappear tomorrow? Because, I mean, let's be honest, a lot of what a church does is religious things. You know and so if the church wouldn't disappear tomorrow there'd be less people in this location singing praises to God in Jesus name praying in Jesus name uh, running Sunday schools and youth groups and university fellowship of Christian things so if you're not especially interested in religion you probably wouldn't notice yeah. Except you get a little bit angry if you're Anglican, because there seems to be a particular kind of Anglican that wants to be able to go to that church down the road. They never will, but they want it to stay open so that they can not go to it. You know, there's that kind of traditionalist, right? I just want it there, you know, just like knowing it's there so I can not go, not go to it. Well, what's the joke? They talk about the sea of England, not the Church of England, but the Christ, Christmas and Easter, you know, um, just go twice a year, but I want it open every Sunday, because I might go, I won't, but I might go, but I won't. Um, But come on, Christianity is more than Bible and prayer and Sunday school, isn't it? It's more than church services, isn't it? Christianity is a whole lot more than that. God is, as we've been seeing over and over again, the God of the whole world. He's the creator of the whole world, of everything. Yeah? God's word speaks to every area of our lives, and we worship God in our whole lives, in our thinking, our speaking, our doing, in our public lives, as well as our private lives, in our religious stuff, and our secular stuff. In a way, there's nothing secular for the Christian. It's all part of our spiritual life. Our mundane routines, our creative and recreational pursuits, all of that we do in Jesus' name. Thanks to God through him. Devout Christians who have been loved, so loved by God, are interested in loving their neighbour as they love themselves. Loving their neighbour as God loved them. Not just in church groups, but in the community. Even, as Jesus taught, loving our enemies. If your church were to disappear tomorrow, would anyone notice? Well, in that sense, I would hope so, wouldn't you? You'd hope that the Christians would be missed, sadly, for the good that they do. If your church were to disappear tomorrow, would anyone notice? And if the way the question is asked creates an extra little riddle. Because the way the question is asked is, if your church were to disappear tomorrow, would anyone notice? That particular emphasis, your the church. And it's often asked as a challenge to Wellspring church. What are you doing to making a difference in the community so that if you were gone, the community would say, oh, where was that? Where have the Wellspringers gone? Because they, they made such a difference to our community. It's framed as a challenge to the organisation, to the community, to make a noticeable difference. And that's, that's where we're going to get into a little bit of a question because it is necessary, we've just said, for Christians... For every Christian to live out your faith and love and good deeds. It's good and right for Christians even to organise together to make a difference for love and good deeds. But how much of this stuff is done by the church, like Wellspring Anglican Church? You make a difference in your neighbourhood, uh, supporting those in need, perhaps neighbours and so on. Do you do it always with your Baptist church T-shirt on and sending a report to the deacons? not necessarily, do you see what I mean? And so you as a Christian are making a difference, you as a member of that church are making a difference, but it's not necessarily like a church program. Do you kind of see the difference there? What we do as Christians might not be the same as what we do kind of as the church community. Many of these things are not the responsibility, perhaps, of the local church itself. Uh, and It actually might be often quite proper for Christians to do things separately, from the church itself, you know, in the world in other ways. Maybe even with non-Christians. We partner together with others to make a difference for the environment in the political world, for education or whatever it is. Yeah? And so in this sermon, we're going to wrestle with that question of how we put together in our thinking being a Christian, being part of the church, being in the kingdom of heaven, kingdom of God, and how that then relates to the many good deeds we should do in our worship of God, and the gospel mission he's entrusted to us. That's what we're going to tackle tonight. The last three sermons have been Bible book overviews, haven't they? Me. Psalms, Zechariah. Tomorrow we'll look at 1 Corinthians and how Paul uses the kingdom of God in his letter to the Corinthians. So that'll be back into a Bible overview, sort of. But tonight's topical, we're thinking about the relationship between Christians in general and local churches. In particular, about the relationship between the kingdom of God and the church, and about the relationship between good deeds, all the good things we as Christians ought to do, and the gospel mission of evangelism and making disciples in particular. So a bit bit of a joining the dots together thing tonight, and we'll find some, I hope, some really inspiring as well as challenging applications. Along the way, too. Three points. Number one, the gospel and good deeds. Number two, the kingdom of God and the church. And just two points. (laughs) I wrote three points in the earlier draft and go back and change it. The gospel and good deeds and the kingdom of God and the church. Here we go. The gospel and good deeds. Here I'm going to unpack for you a a kind of almost like a web of ways in which the gospel of God's salvation in Jesus Christ and then the preaching of the gospel of God's salvation in Jesus Christ, the web of ways that relates to doing good. Yeah, It's kind of like a web of things. So if you're taking notes, you could have a list or you could maybe do some kind of um, uh, hexagon or heptagon or something like this. Let's see how we get on with this. First of all, the gospel is God's great good deed of love to us. That's the first thing. The, The gospel is God being extremely charitable to us loving and generous to us. We should start by remembering this, that God so loved the world, that he gave his one and only Son, that whoever believes in him won't perish, but have eternal life. As Titus chapter 3 puts it, the kindness and love of God our Saviour appeared, and he saved us, not because of anything we've done, but because of his own mercy and grace. In Titus chapter 3. Our greatest personal need, our greatest spiritual need. I suppose when you think about the resurrection to life everlasting or eternal judgment, you could say even our greatest physical need, as we are resurrected physically to life or judgment, our greatest need is to be rescued from the wrath of God, reconciled to our Creator, and given the sure hope of resurrection to eternal life. That's my biggest need. That's your biggest need. That's the best gift you could give someone. So you can't separate gospel mission from good deeds because the gospel itself is God's extraordinary good deed, his act of charity to us. That's the first uh, point in our hexagon. (laughs) Secondly, the necessary response to the gospel, the necessary response to the gospel includes wholehearted worship of God and love for our neighbour. If you respond to what God has done for you and his love for you, the necessary response to that as you trust in him, is to love God and love your neighbor. Jesus said it, great, two great commandments. Greatest commandment, love all you, your God, with your heart, mind, soul and strength. You read to us. Second greatest commandment is like it, love your neighbor as yourself. All the law and the prophets hang on that. Genuine conversion results in a spirit-led life of love and good deeds. Take out Titus chapter two. Titus chapter two, right at the end of the New Testament, before the book of Revelation. Um, got five T books by Paul. One and two Thessalonians, one and two Timothy and Titus. Um, at the end of Titus chapter 2, the grace of God, verse 11. Titus 2 verse 11. The grace of God that brings salvation has appeared to all men. It teaches us to say no to ungodliness and worldly passions and to live life of self-controlled, upright, godly lives in the present age while we wait for the blessed hope, the glorious appearing of our great God and Saviour, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from wickedness and to purify for himself a people that are his very own, eager to do good. God who saved us is worthy of all glory, honour and praise and our Saviour God is the creator of all things and so he commands us to serve him in his whole creation. And the more we dwell on the, the, what God has done for us in Jesus and what it means, the more we have motivation for spiritual adoration and for humble service in our lives, eager to do good. Saved, loved, purified to do good. And that that doing good is never individualistic. We're a people of his very own, eager to do good, yeah? And so we do that together, on our own, in our families, friendship circles, churches, and in fellowships, like the uni fellowship. We have opportunity to do good in all these various ways. Maybe in new fellowships, especially to meet a particular need of love or good deeds. Thirdly, worship of God and love for our neighbour, these great good responses to the gospel, worship of God and love for our neighbour, necessarily... Um, also include telling people about God's love for us in Jesus. So one of the ways you worship God, we saw this in the Psalms, is by praising him to him and then turning to others and praising God to others. Oh God, you are great. Hey everybody, let me tell you about my God. He is so great. I worship God by singing his praises to others. And I uh, love others by telling them about their God who is not far from them, who hasn't given up on them, who is holding out the offer of life eternal to them. What a wonderful gift to be able to give up. Sometimes someone doesn't want to know, you have to leave it. Sometimes they shut down the conversation, you have to just be patient and pray. But when someone hears that you're a Christian and they're interested and they want to find out more and you get to tell them a little more and then you run out of words and so you say, come and meet my friend who's got more words and I'll introduce you to Ben. And then Ben tells them the rest or whatever. You know, and, and then you get that exciting thing of seeing someone come to new life. How wonderful that is. It's so exciting. And then almost straight away you're then learning from them as well as they grow in their faith and they see things and they express their faith. It's really wonderful. It's a wonderful way to worship God and love another person to preach the gospel. Uh, American preacher John Piper said at the Lausanne Congress on World Evangelization back in 2010, Christians care about all suffering, especially eternal suffering. In other words, one of the kinds of suffering in the world I care about is eternal suffering, the wrath of God, and so in my charitable care for others, I look for opportunities to share the gospel. Fourth, the way you share the gospel should be done in a way of good deeds. That is, the gospel should be preached in a just, loving, truthful manner. It's not like the cause of the gospel justifies any means to achieve that ends. It's not uh, an ends justifies the means. So I can use any, perhaps manipulative or slightly deceitful, overbearing, Uh, selfish or appealing to other people's selfishness kind of method. Check out how the Apostle Paul talks about his ministry in 1 Thessalonians 2. Just another one of these T letters. we looked at Titus, come back a few pages to 1 Thessalonians 2. And he speaks about his integrity in his ministry. He says in 2 verse 3, The appeal we make to you does not spring from error or impure motives, nor are we trying to trick you. On the contrary, we speak as men approved by God and trusted with this gospel. We're not trying to please men. God, who tests our hearts. You know we never use flattery, nor do we use a mask to cover up greed. God is our witness. We were not looking for praise from you or from anyone else. The way you preach the gospel has to be marked by this integrity. He says a similar thing in 2 Corinthians 4. We've renounced secret and shameful ways. You've um, had the benefit of um, sitting in the seminar stuff with Samuel Green, he's a great teacher, and I hope you've, you've enjoyed that, that teaching. What well, you may or may not know about him, he's also got another secret life. He kind of doesn't like to fight crime as a masked superhero, no. But he's actually a, a world evangelist in Islam. So he engages with Muslims all over the world. He used to travel, since COVID, a lot of it's been on YouTube. But he'll go on these jumongous Muslim channels and enter into some debate about, does the Bible prophesy Muhammad? Was Jesus really crucified? And, and he's there with his, his um, Arabic commands out around him and then ready to answer these questions and talk about 6th century gospels of Barnabas. <laughs> so there you go. That's a, another side to Samuel. Perhaps you could ask him about that. See, you know, not like when you get a teacher that you can distract in class. You know, remember in Roman high school, where you've just got to get them onto that topic and then the rest of the lesson is just like, sit back and no more maths. He's just going to tell stories about his last fishing trip on territory or <laughs> whatever. Get Samuel going on Islam and you get all these really interesting, <laughs> interesting stories. I wouldn't would dare suggest such a thing, but if you get rewarded, I would suggest such a thing. <laughs> but one of the things actually he gets bullied from is other Christian evangelists who say you're not cross enough and you're not aggressive enough. There are Christians who, rather than setting forth the truth plainly, kindly, graciously, as Samuel seeks to do, they think their job is to, to fight for God and become aggressive and fierce and, and lose the grace and gentleness of the gospel. Yeah, But we mustn't do that. There are Christian evangelists who will appeal to people's selfishness and the message becomes mainly about meaning or health and they leave beside God almost entirely. God becomes kind of almost it starts to seem like a like a genie in a bottle rather than the creator to be worshipped. That can become a risk, can't it? Come to God for what you get out of him. That can become a risk, can't it? Or we can just be so talky and so imposing and, and not looking for the consent to continue to talk and so people feel trapped, yeah? Feel in a corner as we talk at them. No, it's not on. You know, back in the 1970s, a whole lot of hippies became Christians and this general movement was called the Jesus movement. A whole range of these long-haired hippie types ended up becoming long-haired hippie Jesus types. Some of it was awesome. Some of it was weird. Mm-hmm. There was particularly one group that began to engage in a form of evangelism they called flirty fishing. Jesus sends you to go and become fishers of men. Well, what, how could you be a fisher? What bait could you use? You could flirt. You could invite people into a romantic relationship or more. And it's all, good, it's all fine. It's all fine. Because it's for evangelism. Uh-uh. No way. <laughs> honesty, kindness, integrity, truth, morality. We must preach the gospel free from favouritism, discrimination, coercion. We want to be known as people who talk about Jesus, yeah, but not people who do it in a way, that the very way we do it is off. Yeah, A word that is often used to describe this these days is proselytising. It's come to capture that idea of a coercive form of evangelism. And so you often have policies, no proselytising. And in, sense, in that sense, I feel like we can say, well no, I don't want to proselytise in an aggressive unwanted way but I do still want to talk about Jesus and other people do want to hear about Jesus. And so I will continue to do that. Yeah? Sometimes I think uh, some of the secular thinkers assume all evangelism is Bible bashing, which is just absurd. <laughs> You know, there's inevitably ways of persuading and talking. There has to be. Otherwise, we actually become isolated from one another, don't we? So that would be the way I'd have that conversation, you know? So, anyway, so that's the fourth. The gospel should be proclaimed in a just, loving, truthful manner. Fifth, good deeds of many kinds commend the gospel. When Christians do what is good, it actually makes the gospel more attractive. Come back to Titus. Because we see that there all through that Titus chapter 2. The way in which the good deeds. Uh, Commend the gospel, Titus chapter two and verse five. Uh, young women in being self-controlled and pure, and busy at home and kind, and subject to their husbands, so that no one will malign the word of God. So it's actually a, the, the behaviour will bring credit to the, the word uh, to the word of God. Uh, two verse eight, two verse eight, um, in your teaching. Show integrity and seriousness and soundness of speech that cannot be condemned so that those who oppose you may be ashamed because they have nothing bad to say about us. Or 2 verse 10, uh, teach slaves not to steal from their masters but to show they can be fully trusted so that in every way they will make the teaching about God, our Saviour, attractive. Titus is saying live in a way that your behaviour actually brings credit to the Gospel, makes it attractive. It's not seen as a negative force but a positive force in the community. And what's true for your personal behaviour is also true for the church as a community, Christian community. Jesus says in John 13, verse 35, by this everyone will know if you are my disciples. How? Did you know the end of that one? If you have loved one for you know. love, another. So if the Christians love each other, they actually show they are the disciples of Jesus, commend that. One missionary thinker said um, the church is the hermeneutic of the gospel. Hermeneutic means like the explanatory interpretation. If you want to understand the gospel, if you want an explanatory interpretation of the gospel, look at the church at its best as they love one another and you get a sense of God's love. Of course the opposite is true too, isn't it? Romans chapter 2 verse um, 24 quotes the prophet who said, God's name is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you the way you live. And that's true, isn't it? shocking handling of institutional child sexual abuse in many of the churches. Although wanting to stand for what God does teach about his good purpose for sexuality, sadly, often the way we talk about and treat those who struggle with temptation, same-sex attraction, is often really bad. And Christians wrestling with those things feel really badly done by even if they continue on in the Christian life, the Christian sexual ethic. Through Christian history, my goodness, there are wonderful stories of good but a lot of, lot of bad, a lot of bad, yeah. And And even just for us as a group, for us and our reputation amongst the other young adults and students of Tasmania, will we be known at uni fellowship, you? Will you be a person? They go, yeah, they wear the T-shirt, but they're lazy in the group work. Or they're selfish, whenever you give them a lift or go out to drink somewhere. Or when you go out to drink somewhere, they drink plenty. That they sleep around, that their tongues are as cruel and mean as any other gossip. That they lack tolerance or compassion. That they're boastful. That's all about them. It's going to be hard to preach the gospel, isn't it? And make the gospel seem credible. If the people who speak in the gospel's name no, don't live in a way that attracts credibility, so good deeds commend the gospel. And sixth, good deeds provide opportunities for gospel proclamation. As I'm just loving others in my life, love comes in practical forms, and then is often coded with uh, with words of comfort too, words of explanation, words of reflection. Even words of motivation, why do you do all this? Well, let me tell you one of the reasons I do it, is because it's really important in my faith. I feel this is how God has treated me and God wants me to treat others this way. That kind of stuff, yeah? And so, um, uh, it actually puts me in relationship context as I love other people, as I'm a friendly neighbor rather than a totally switched off neighbor, as I'm a helpful classmate rather than just trying to get the best mark classmate, yeah? As i a person open to others, rather than closed to others. I mean, we were talking about Christian and Muslims just before, but would the Christian be the person that if a conservative Muslim migrant family moved next door, they would go, there goes the neighbourhood, that's really awkward, I don't like that, they're different to me. Or would the Christian say, new people come into our community. New people coming to our country, let's welcome them and get to know them and help them feel settled. and Let's understand their needs and their cultures and their traditions and their belief. If we're people who are open to us, serving to others, giving to others, if we then volunteer, if you're helping uh, reforest an area, if you're helping serve uh, those who are homeless or in need, if you're practically engaged um, in the political process for the good of society, Then that will put you shoulder to shoulder with people you might never meet otherwise, won't it? In the queue for the hot chocolates and the warm meal? Or in the in the party membership room, suddenly you're meeting people you never would have dreamed of meeting otherwise. And so as you do good deeds, you then get new opportunities for connection to share the gospel. Gospel preaching. Uh, opens up all these other doors and ways that we can love and serve others. And in that context, speak for Christ. In fact, I saw just, I see back behind Sarah, she's got a Christian service. On. So there you go, loving surfing, that's cool. Now, surfing uh, is a beautiful part of God's creation, but since you're out on the beach anyway, since you're out in the waves anyway, suddenly there you are with other Christians praying for and looking for opportunities to, I guess, not be a snake on the waves, and all those kind you know, but respect, show respect in the water, hopefully. But also then, you're suddenly meeting people, all sorts of people who are also surfing. And so then that's the Christian service is a group all around the world where people are conscious of how, how can we, um, while pursuing this, this fun hobby, also then connect, oh no, it's more than a hobby, Sarah, I know. It's a way of life. Okay. Um, then in the midst of that, you can look for opportunities to share the gospel. Yeah. And yet, having said all that about these this, this wonderful relationships, this, um, this hexagon of relationships between um, the gospel and good deeds, And yet still the gospel and the gospel preaching can be separated in our minds from doing good deeds. And that's kind of our point seven. You can put it around your hexagon or in the middle of your hexagon, I don't know. Um, You see it most clearly in like the Gideons, for example. They, They make Bibles available super cheap because they're sort of Sneaky business people who know how to get a good deal. Super cheap Bibles, millions of Bibles, Bibles, Bibles everywhere. In hotel drawers and, and handed out schools and whatever. They're not really involved in living a life in front of all the people who might open up a Gideon's Bible. They're not necessarily, in many ways, doing a lot of the good deeds with all, each of those Bibles. It's just a word on its own that can do its work. It can be the same with an internet ministry. You have a website that proclaims the gospel. Someone hits on the website and hears the gospel. They're not necessarily encountering a whole lot of community, loving relationship, practical help. It's just raw gospel, almost entirely, right? But they can still be saved as they get the gospel. The gospel is the message proclaimed. It almost always is accompanied by some of these other things, but it doesn't have to be. It can be just simply heard or read and someone can be saved by just hearing and reading it. It's not bad to just hand out a tract that explains the gospel, to just drop a Bible in a place where someone can read it when they stay in the hotel, and so on and so forth. And so we can still separate in our mind gospel preaching from good deeds. Here's a bunch of different ways people describe the difference. Australian evangelist John Dixon talks about proclaiming the gospel and promoting the gospel, a broader thing. Leslie Newbigin talks about missions, which he means this narrower thing, and then mission, which is a, a broader category in his way of talking. Abraham Kuyper there, for your reformed guys out there, talks about the church as the institution, preaching the gospel, and the church as an organism, doing all the other things Christians do. Kevin DeYoung and Greg Gilbert talk about the disciple-making mission of the church, and good deeds. You see it in the Bible, in Peter talking about the first deacons in Acts chapter six, where Peter says in Acts six, it's not right for us apostles to stop the service of the word of God and prayer in order to serve tables in practical ministry. So let's find others who will serve on the tables in practical ministry, so we can devote ourselves to the preaching, God and prayer. Yeah, as examples of the way of thinking about it. Whatever words you use. There, is, there can be this distinction between mission preaching, evangelism and good deeds. And creating that distinction is not sometimes you have people say oh man, well, that's creating a, a dualism or a distinction or it's somehow saying that people who do good, charitable deeds are lesser Christians than evangelists and missionaries. No, no, it's not saying that. We've just been saying that they're connected together but that there is a difference still. Not every difference is somehow some ugly division yeah? The person who is the evangelist values the person who does the charitable work. The person who does the charitable work uh, is thankful for the evangelist proclaiming the gospel. And of course both of them do a bit of both. So yeah, evangelism and good deeds not in conflict or in competition any more than evangelism and holiness. Godly Christians ought to be committed to doing good to their neighbours in a whole range of ways, on a whole range of levels. But what about you guys? What about you? Are you committed to doing good? How do you do good in your life? To your friends and family, to your neighbours and classmates. How might you do good more widely in the community and the world? Do you make a difference for the love of others? When you pray in church, give us today our daily bread. Are you ever an answer to someone else's prayer for their daily bread? by your generosity and faithful preaching and discipleship will challenge and inspire Christians in this individually and corporately and it will also motivate other Christians to share in the work of evangelism and discipleship themselves are you sharing in the work of making disciples point number two and this is a little simpler, I think. The kingdom of God and the church. It's really another way into the same question, I think. The kingdom of God and the church. I've been going on and on about it. I'm pretty sure the seminar has been teaching us this as well. But first of all, the kingdom of God is universal. God's the creator God, the one living creator God, everything. So if you're anywhere, you're in the kingdom of God. No matter what you believe and where you are and what you do, you're in the kingdom of God as God's world. He's the king of everything. There is God's sovereign rule is bigger than the church. It's bigger than those who believe in Jesus. It is wherever God rules, the Lord reigns. He rules over his whole creation, over all of history. In that sense, all things are in the kingdom of God. Everything. The kingdom of God is bigger than the church, and the activities of the church, and the preaching of the gospel, or whatever you like. It's bigger than bishops and deacons and evangelists and ministers. Everything we do, we ought to serve our divine king as family members, as as citizens of our nation and so forth. And yet in a second sense, and this is in the sense mainly that Jesus uses it, um, there is what we call the saving kingdom of God. So when Jesus says, enter the kingdom of God, um, must be born again to enter the kingdom God. Seek first the kingdom of, and his righteousness, and so on and so forth. He can't be talking about living in the universe. You already are in it. You don't need to be born again to be in God's universal reign, do you? You already. Everyone is. No, he's talking about God's saving kingdom. He's talking about the fulfilment of this Bible story we've looked at in the seminars and the sermons. Entering into God's covenant promise where he's re-establishing his blessing rule over his beloved people in the place he's given to them. That's the kingdom Jesus usually talks about, that you seek, receive, enter, seek first, the saving kingdom of God, we could call it. That's the kingdom that comes. That's the kingdom that draws near as God's saving rule is extended through the life, death, resurrection of Christ and the preaching of his gospel. And that kingdom, as we'll see tomorrow, in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, comes to a fulfilment when Jesus returns and puts down every other kingdom, including death itself. And then he hands over the kingdom of this age to hit the Father and God the Father, Son, and Spirit will rule in a new creation, the kingdom of God that will never end. So there's the universal kingdom, there's the saving kingdom. But you know what? The saving kingdom is still different than the church in the sense that Jesus is at work bringing his gospel out into the world, um, even beyond the bounds of the activities of churches and ministers and deacons and parish councils and so on. He's out there going ahead in his spirit. Um, he's sending out people. He's often, in the book of Acts, you see the apostles catching up for where God's people have informally gone, sharing the gospel already. Yeah? That Jesus is at work building his church, working through individuals, as well as through the church as an institution, both in the church and beyond, in all the things we as Christians do as we live in obedience to Jesus and speak for him. The church expresses the saving kingdom, but it's not entirely identical with it. And yet within this saving kingdom of God, the church does have a mission. So what is the mission of the church? Yes, as those who belong to God, are created by him as a citizens of the kingdom of God, yes, we are to do everything God tells us to do. We're to worship God, love our neighbour, obey everything he's commanded us, love our families, work hard at our jobs, alleviate physical suffering, oppose injustice. There's many things Christians are to do as God's people. So I suppose you could say that's the mission of God's people, to do all that. But that's a little different to saying what is it that God has given his people as the church to do? What is the mission of the church? Is the mission of Wellspring Church or uh, Punchbowl Baptist Church or Crossroads Presbyterian Church, is the mission of these churches to alleviate suffering, deal with injustice, Um, love God in in the environment and so on and so forth. Many of the good things we are to do as Christians. Serve to the glory of God. Christians should do that if they're servers, but that's not the mission of the church, you know. What has God given the church as the church to do? Do you see what I mean? The church in particular what is our mission? The mission of the church in particular is to make disciples. is the Great Commission. That as we as God's people in every area of our lives love God and love our neighbour As the church, he has charged us with his saving work to preach Christ, to make disciples, as the church. Here's how our theologian, Peter de Jong, explains it. Not everything may be undertaken by the church in the world. This needs emphasis today. Often, we find the church expected to build schools, maintain nurseries, introduce recreational programs for the youth, plan programs in good citizenship, and directly influence the course of politics. Whatever seems wrong in society is charged against Christ's church. In consequence, many church leaders find themselves overburdened with so many responsibilities in and for the community, that the proper calling of the church is forgotten. Yes, we as God's people are to do good in all sorts of ways, but as the church, the focus of our work is to preach Christ, to make disciples. We may do some good deeds as a part of our church community and denomination, but our focus work is to preach the gospel and make disciples. Often if you get a Christian who's really passionate about fresh water or a particular medical need or political need or, or something like this, they'll get really passionate in the church and they'll start then saying to everyone in the church and to the church leaders, we really need to do this as a church. And it's tempting to go, oh, there's people in my church, and if all of them joined this cause that I really believe in, and if all of them um, were committed to this, gosh, what a difference it would make. And if you then want to get the attention of the council, or the state government, or the federal government, imagine if all of us signed a petition, oh, what a captive audience. We can start to think this way. But that's where it's again important to realise the church is not necessarily as the church, the, the group that you organise to do those things. Yeah? Christians you inspire to do good. But it's not necessarily always the church's job to follow every one of these tasks. Sometimes it slips into ways where we begin to talk about anything that we love as being spiritual things. It's um, kingdom parenting, kingdom uh, surfing, <laughs> uh, redeeming culture in the arts. And we start to talk about whatever we're passionate about and turn it into the mission of the church like that. But rather, instead, we need to say, as well as the good things we all do as Christians, we must preserve the central role of the church for the preaching of the gospel. All right, let's bring this to a close. What have we been saying tonight? We've been saying that good deeds are central to the Christian life and connected to the gospel mission necessarily. But not every good thing a Christian does is equally part of the saving mission of God and necessarily central to bringing the saving kingdom of God. Not in the same way that preaching and disciple-making are. Yeah. And so, there's lots of ways to motivate Christians to do good, but it doesn't always have to be saying this is the job of the church, or that this is the mission of the church. But what does this mean for us? Well, firstly, thinking clearly is good as we seek to understand that. So we've just been thinking about church, good deeds, gospel, evangelism, kingdom. Thinking clearly about God's word is good for us. And will help us in all sorts of other ways down the track as you begin to think about other topics. Thinking clearly about kingdom, church, good deeds, mission, gospel will help you down the track. That's the first thing, thinking hard and carefully will help you, it'll avoid confusion, and open up other doors of understanding. But secondly, and I want to finish with this, in all of this, what we've been saying, there should be two challenges. Am I committed to doing good in the world? Am I? Practically, socially, politically, artistically, environmentally, intellectually, charitably, am I committed to doing good as God's saved person? Eager to do good. And secondly, am I committed to the special good deed of preaching the gospel in the world and serving that cause with God's church? Am I? What part do I play in that? Think clearly about how they relate together, but spiritually, zealously seek both. Loving Father, you've saved us by your love, you've called us to yourself, you've created us to do good deeds to your glory. We praise you and ask by your Spirit that you may lead us to do good, give us opportunities to do good, make us eager to do good. And in your church, as we sit in the saving kingdom. You've entrusted us with your gospel message and the charge to work to make disciples of all nations. Give us opportunities, as we've already prayed tonight, together as a group and as individuals, to share the message of Christ. We ask these good things, and we ask for the power to fulfil these wonderful duties. In Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.